0: Hello and welcome to the Kiskea Chapel Sermon Podcast. Kiskea Chapel is an international church in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, where we equip English-speaking believers to expand God's kingdom in our community and beyond. For more information about Kiskeia Chapel, you can visit us on our website at kiskeiachapel.org. We hope you enjoy this message.
1: Again, some of you, if you're new or you haven't been with us recently, We're studying through the Gospel of Mark together. And so this past week was week four in our AIM journal. Luke talked about that. It's a way you can kind of participate in the readings with us. And we'd encourage you if you want to do that, we'd love for you to participate with us there. I'm going to teach on one of the passages that you should have read this week. That's kind of going to be our pattern from here on out. The passages you study during the week, I'll choose at least one of them, maybe a couple of them that I would be teaching on or anybody else who was teaching up here would teach the same thing. So this week, we're going to talk about Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35. And let me read that to you. I don't know if I have the same translation, but we'll get close. (laughs) Here we go. That day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. And he said to the disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified. And asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey Him." Now they've just seen Jesus have some miraculous healings. Uh, a- a- as was mentioned before, Jairus' daughter, he literally is like, say the word and she'll be healed, and Jesus brings her back. But they're unprepared for what they just experience. Reminds me many, many years ago when I was a young, young man, uh, I went to a summer camp. It was on a lake up in Minnesota, which is almost on the Canadian border in America there. It was called Castaway Camp. It was led by Young Life. Young Life's a ministry I know is down here in. In uh, Haiti, pretty effective, they, they try and reach high school age students. So I was a high school age student, and I thought it sounded fun. So I go up to this lake up in Minnesota, and one of the activities, which I had never done before, was sailing. Anybody here ever sailed? We got a few sailors here. All right, boys have sailed over there. Show that next picture there. Um, I didn't know what this was. Have you seen these sailboats? They kind of like have two sections and then like a tarp in between them and the sail. It's called a catamaran. So they said, yeah, anybody who wants to go down on the lake and you can go sailing in one of the catamarans. Well, I was there primarily at the time, not because I wanted to know more about Jesus, but because I wanted to know more about girls who were on the trip. So I didn't want to tell anyone I had never been sailing. So I'm telling this girl that I'm kind of interested. Yeah, I'm a pretty good sailor. I've sailed quite a bit. (laughs) And I convinced her to get on the catamaran with me, and I put up the sail. I had no idea what kind of power the wind Creates. I mean, this thing just took off. And then it goes up on its side like this. And I'm thinking like, oh no, I'm out of control. So I just let go of the sail and the whole thing flips over, dumps her out. And we're out kind of way out in the middle of this lake. And she's looking at me like, you are a loser. (laughs) And I'm thinking like, Okay, what do I do now? I'm not strong enough to flip this boat back over, or I don't know what I'm doing. So we just waited out there. It seemed like forever, until finally one of the camp counselors came out in his cool little catamaran sailboat. He picks her up, puts her on his boat, and he says, I'll help you flip it over. We flip it over, and he says, now you need to hold this rope attached to the boat, and you need to swim it back to shore. See ya. He and the girl go flying off. I don't know, it seemed like it took me hours to swim that boat back to shore. In total humiliation, I get up, finally get the boat there, and all these people are looking at me just like, You are, wow, that was pitiful. Well, that's a a term I learned at that time. It's in the passage here. The term is getting swamped. Swamped means your boat flipped over. And that's what's going on in Mark chapter 4. Jesus' disciples are freaking out because they're thinking they're about to be swamped. That's a, that's a weird feeling when you know you're about to flip over. You're about to be swamped. I want to talk a little bit about uh, one of the greatest painters in history was a man named Rembrandt von Rijn. Rembrandt, in fact, so famous uh, that most painters over the world see him as like the father of all painting. Rembrandt, uh, one of his recent Uh, Paintings was just discovered, it's been five or six years ago, and it was sold at an auction house in London for $33 million, setting the record for the most expensive painting ever bought. (laughs) People were hoping it was the real thing. But he painted the picture of this passage we're talking about. Jesus on the Sea of Galilee with the disciples, fearing their boats about to be swamped. Because he wasn't really that we know of, I don't know if he was a Christian, but he knew that feeling of being swamped. Like, oh no, the boat's going over. Uh Uh-oh, what are we gonna do? Rembrandt, uh, obviously, even in his day, was seen as the greatest painter in Europe in the 1600s. Uh, In fact, he became so wealthy that he bought a mansion uh, that today looks like like a couple of city blocks. It's so big. He overspent on everything. He had married a gal named Saskia. They had five children. Three of them died before age one. And then Saskia died at age 29, his wife. And then he had some business dealings that didn't go well. He lost absolutely everything. He was selling all of his original paintings for almost nothing, ones that go for 33 million today. He was a swamped man. Now if you don't know this, and maybe you're not into art, which is totally fine, but in this painting, Uh, When it was finally discovered, they began looking more closely and studying the painting. Jump to the next slide. I don't know if you can see it. That's a close-up. We know what he looks like because he did a lot of self-portraits. The interesting thing is there's Jesus and the disciples, but Rembrandt painted himself in the boat. That's him. That's his face. He's wearing the turban that would have been traditional in his day. Because Rembrandt is like, I know that feeling. I feel like my life has been swamped. And I don't know what to do. So here in Mark chapter 4, this story is depicted about these seasoned sailors. Did you know, by the way, of Jesus' 12 disciples, we know for sure that seven were sailors. We think two others were professional sailors, fishermen. These are guys that — this is not me at camp going like, I said I've sailed, but I've never really sailed before. They were completely familiar with this lake. They were completely familiar with storms on the lake. This was nothing new, but something was going on here that was so magnificent and unique that even they felt like they were about to be swamped. Uh, look at Mark chapter four, verse one. It says, Jesus began teaching by the lake shore. That's how this day began. At the beginning of Mark chapter four, Jesus starts teaching by the lake shore, and so many crowds start pressing in on him that it says that Jesus gets into a boat to begin teaching. And there's a lot of people who have theories about why did Jesus get in a boat? I think the simplest one is so that he wouldn't be crushed by the crowd. Some people would suggest that this is as a speaker in a large crowd, if you'll push the boat back on the water, you can bounce your voice off the water. We don't know. But for whatever reason, Jesus is sitting in a boat on the Sea of Galilee talking to these massive crowds that are showing up. Wanting him to heal their sick children. Wanting him to give them hope. And so Jesus is teaching all day. All day. As best we can tell from the language here, this would have been from early morning until it got dark. Jesus non-stop teaching. And the crowds keep coming. Look at Mark chapter 4, verse 35 and 36 says, the evening comes and the disciples say, let's cross to the other side. Now that may not sound like a big deal to you, but for a Jew in the first century, that's a big deal. Because the east side, the other side was the Gentile Roman side, and we don't want to go there. If you're a good Jewish boy, you don't want to go hang out with those people. The region was called the Decapolis. Decapolis meant 10 cities. There were 10 Roman cities on the other side. They're so desperate to get Jesus out of this mess, teaching all day, the crowds thronging, pressing in on him that they go, all right, let's just get him in on boat and let's let's head over towards the other side. And then it tells us that Jesus was actually wiped out. Did you know that? The God of the universe took on human flesh to such a degree that he actually was tired? Jesus is like, I'm spent. In fact, I love the way it says it there. Look at that. So they took Jesus, verse 36, in the boat and started out leaving the crowds behind, although other boats followed. Even then they couldn't get away from the crowds. All these people thought, okay, let's get in a boat. Let's go follow this guy around. And then in verse... 37, it tells us the action really starts up. It appears to be evening, probably getting dark, and a furious squall, just a powerful storm out of nowhere shows up on the Sea of Galilee. Now this again would not have been something uncommon or unfamiliar to the disciples. Most of them would have been like we grew up here. This is our home court. This is our lake. We know this place. But the waves apparently are so significant that they're actually scared. They use the word. They were nearly swamped. Now, you have to know a little bit about this. Run to the next slide there. Uh, That's kind of a topographical picture of the Sea of Galilee. It's a very long and narrow lake. It's not really a sea but it's this interior lake in Israel. But what's unique about it is way down in a valley, it's surrounded by hills all the way around. So when we read things like Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount, it's these mounts just outside of the Sea of Galilee. This is where Jesus and most of the disciples grew up. That's why most of them are fishermen in this region. This lake was about 13 miles by eight, eight miles wide or I think in kilometers, it's 21 kilometers by 13 kilometers. That's not that big. And even more interesting, at its deepest point, the Sea of Galilee only gets to 200 feet deep. It's a very shallow lake. So what happens, and it still happens to this day, I I was on a storm there, but nothing like this. But... (laughs) The wind catches these two mountains and it's like a tunnel. It feeds the wind through and it hits this shallow water and all of a sudden you get waves. In fact, in 1992, the Sea of Galilee had 10 foot waves on it reported. Now that, that's wildly unique, I don't know if that's what's going on here, but it's not uncommon for the Sea of Galilee in the midst of a storm to briefly have waves as high as six foot high, that's as high as me. We know what kind of boat they were in, in fact we've discovered some boats from Jesus' day. It's really easy when you look at them to see like, these guys were like, uh-oh, it's dark out, we're on the middle of the Sea of Galilee. A massive storm came out of nowhere. We're getting six foot plus waves that are smashing over the boat. We're about to get swamped here. The game is almost over. And then the text tells us something quite interesting. Jump to the next slide. (laughs) They find Jesus in the middle of this crazy storm, sleeping on the stern. And only Mark says this. Some of the other Gospel writers tell this story, but they don't include this detail. Mark said, he had his head on a little cushion. (laughs) Oh, can you hear the cynicism? It's like, yeah, we're like freaking out. The waves are crashing over and Jesus is sleeping with a little cushion. And they're like, "What? What is going on here? Do you know people like this who could sleep through anything?" I, my dad, God bless my father, he could sleep through anything. He'd fall asleep just like that. It'd make my mom so mad. She'd have to work so hard. You know, like five seconds in, they'd go to bed at night. My dad'd be asleep, and she'd say, "Van, Van." He'd go, Whoa, what?" She goes are you kidding me? Were you really sleeping? He's like, well, I was. My dad had a great sense of humor. He used to say, yeah, honey, that's because I have a clear conscience so I can easily go to sleep. (laughs) And I have often said the same thing to Laurel, who sometimes has a hard time going to sleep, and I am just totally (laughs) out. Even though, Actually, in Haiti, um, I'm the one that's having a harder time getting to sleep. But there are people like that. They can sleep through anything. You can turn the lights on for me. You can crank the music up. Sleep right through it. Not a problem. Doesn't make any difference to me. So here's Jesus, sleeping on his little cushion in the back of the boat. And you can just hear their frustration. They have just seen him heal, bring a little girl back to life. They've seen him heal a woman who has a bleeding hemorrhage for 12 years. Nothing has made any difference. They've seen him do these things and they're like, what's going on? Jesus is asleep. We're going to die, man. This boat's going over. We're about to be swamped. And that's when the key line comes out. Probably Peter (laughs) wakes Jesus up and says, teacher, don't you care? If you don't hear anything else this morning, make sure you hear that line. Because this is the universal line all human beings have been throwing at God from the days of Adam until today. God, don't you care? about the stuff I'm going through? Can't you see I'm about to be swamped here? Are you asleep on a little cushion? Don't you care? (laughs) This is the question of all humanity. It doesn't matter whether you live in Haiti or France, America, Canada, it doesn't matter. Everybody's asking this same question. We're all struggling with the same thing. God, do you not see what's going on in our lives? Do you not see the waves, the wind, the rain? Don't you care? Are you sleeping through all my stuff? I'm sure it's what the Haitian business owner thought a few months ago when he had to shut down his shop because too many protests happened in front of his shop and he couldn't afford to stay open. He had to go like, God, don't you care? I could have picked anywhere. But now I'm out of business. It's the same thing the 10-year-old feels. I had a 10-year-old boy down here who told me that after the earthquake, both parents had died and he's been living on the streets. How is he not going to ask the question, God, do you not see what's going on here? Don't you care? The mother who has a six-year-old finds out has a brain tumor. They have to be thinking, don't you care, God? Are you asleep? The single woman who goes, I've always wanted family and I'm still not married. I still don't have kids. Doesn't seem like something too much to ask for. It seems like what God wants us to have. So no matter what happens externally, they may say they have faith, but internally, they're wrestling with this question, God, don't you care? I don't know what you're going through this morning. But my guess is if we took the time, we'd find out that most of you in here either currently feel swamped or you've been swamped in the recent past. And you're going, "God, seriously? Do you are you really asleep in the middle of all this stuff I'm going through?" Cuz it sure seems like you're asleep. Some of you maybe came to Haiti to serve, and you're thinking, wow, I put in all these years. Is is anything happening? Am I making any difference at all? God, don't you care? I I, I feel like, I know you sacrificed everything for me, but I, I feel like I'm sacrificing, but it seems like you're asleep with your head on a little cushion. We all, we all experience this. Anybody that tells you they don't experience this is lying. They're lying. That's our question. God, are you in the boat with me? Or am I all alone in this boat? About to be swamped. Are you on my team? Are you in my corner? It's interesting, Joshua in the Old Testament, they're about to take the city of Jericho. And they see this magnificent warrior that they don't know who he is. Turns out it's an angelic warrior. And they ask the question, are you on our side or are you on their side? And the, the angel flips the question and goes, no. The question is, are you on our side? Because this is the struggle, isn't it? I get that intellectually. I understand God saying, no, no, no. Are you asleep? <laughs> Given all that I've done, are you asleep with your head on a little cushion? And I go, well, actually, often I am. But I still struggle. God, why do I experience these storms that feel like they're going to swamp my boat? Well, it's this passage that maybe more than any other has spoken deeply to me about this. Uh, I'm not alone in those feelings. The disciples completely had that feeling. They'd seen the miracles of Jesus. They'd been with him every day. And yet they still struggled with this question. God, don't you see what's happening? Well, two things jump out to me as a response to this question, this question of God, don't you care? Don't you care about my stuff? The first one is very simple. Storms will come. I know there are Christian groups out there that try and teach if you follow Jesus, you'll avoid all the storms, you'll get rich, and everything will work great for you. How do you tell that to the Apostle Paul? How do you tell that to Stephen, the first martyr in the early church? How do you tell that to Job? How do you speak that to David, King David, whose own children tried to take coups against him to kill him and have him removed from the throne? Storms are something very predictable. Now here's what we know about the Gospel of Mark. Really there's almost consensus on this. The Gospel of Mark got information about Jesus' actions and teaching directly from Peter who was in that boat, probably the guy that woke Jesus up. So it's Peter that's telling him the story. Later on in the New Testament, Peter writes a couple of letters to the church because the church is going through some very difficult persecution at the end of the Roman era. And they're asking the same question. God. Don't you care? Don't you see what's going on? Emperor Nero is taking Christians and lighting them on fire like torches to light the streets. Don't you care? Look what Peter writes there. 1 Peter 4, dear friends, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when storms come up. Don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be glad because these trials make you participants with Jesus. You're sharing in His sufferings. In other words, if you're feeling like you're almost swamped, you are not alone. And Peter says, don't be surprised. That's the deal. That's exactly what Jesus said. In fact, in John 16, verse 33, he says to his disciples, hey, these things I have spoken unto you so that in me you might have peace. In the world, you're going to have waves, storms, tribulations. But be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. But for a while, As Peter says, don't be surprised by these fiery trials you're going through. They shouldn't catch you off guard. Now, let me just talk personally to you this morning. Are you caught off guard when you go through difficult things? Are you shocked by it? Like, God, how could this happen to me? (laughs) Many of us forget God's clear word at this moment. We go, oh, yeah. You did tell us that. In fact, at one point, you know what Jesus says to the disciples, guys, if you think they hated me, wait till you see what they're going to do to you. (laughs) I'm sure the disciples left that day going, what's he talking about? He's telling them, you should expect the storms are going to come. In fact, show me a Christian who's not experiencing the waves and the storms. And I go, I I wonder if indeed they're followers of Christ, because we're told very specifically many times this will happen to you as well. Don't be surprised. Don't go freaking out on everybody because it feels like your life's about to be swamped. Recognize that Jesus told you this is what's going to happen, but it's okay. Be of good cheer. Well, those storms come from different directions. I want to briefly just talk about three there. Go ahead and put that slide up. The first place they come from is the enemy. Did you know you have a real spiritual enemy? One of the words in Hebrew used to talk about Satan is Abaddon. In the New Testament, it's Apollyon. You know what it means? The destroyer. Jesus at one point says, the thief, he called Satan the thief. He comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. If you don't understand that, that Satan is currently the prince of this world, you'll get caught off guard by the storms in your life, won't you? You'll go, what's going on? It's like, look, you're in a war. There's a real battle going on and a real enemy who seeks to destroy you. Peter at one point says, hey, your enemy prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he might devour. We need to memorize that verse so that when trials come, when the storms start hitting our boat, we start going, wait, wait, we have an enemy who'll do anything to swamp our boat. Well, there's a second source that trials come from, and that is the one sometimes we don't like to hear, but that's our own sin. Because God gives us freedom, do you know that uh, even though He forgives us all things, He does not remove many of the laws of the universe. If I tell my kids, don't touch the stove, it's hot. Even if they believe in Jesus and they touch the stove, they still get burnt. They still get burnt. Now, God can do anything He wants miraculously, but the norm is is that God sometimes lets us experience the price tag of our sin. I had a couple, young couple that came in to me years ago They said, oh, we don't understand. We've been so faithful to God, but our finances are a mess, and we're in all kinds of trouble financially. Could you help us? I'm like, yeah. So bring all your stuff, and let's kind of look at your situation. So they start showing me all their stuff. They had $20,000 in credit card debt. I go, why are you blaming God for this? Did you want him to stay your hand at Handal to stop you from spending money? There are some things that if you do, and God has told you, do not do this, but you go ahead and do it, you're going to experience some waves in your boat. That's the way it is. Now, amazingly, God in his grace sometimes even saves us from that stuff, doesn't he? Sometimes we go like, yeah, I really messed up there, but God has been gracious to me. But many times the storms in your life are not difficult to see where they came from. Sometimes it's like, well, you swamped your own boat there. This is not Satan doing this. This is you doing this. Well there's a third source, and this is the source that's really important to understand here. The third source of those storms in our life is God's good discipline. Did you know, here's the difference between those who are followers of Jesus and those who are not. If you're a follower of Jesus, the storms for you are used as discipline to refine you. If you don't know Jesus, they just swamp your boat. That's your choice. But God wants all these things that happen to us, he wants them to become ways of refining us. Years ago, I read a story. I'm I'm just gonna read it to you because I don't think I can say it better myself. A man found the cocoon of an emperor moth. I think I've got a picture of it there. Jump to the next slide. That's That's a moth that's coming out of the cocoon and becoming a butterfly. So that's what he came on and he said, Uh, He was watching this creature emerge from this little tiny hole in this sack there that caused him to become the butterfly. The day came, he began to struggle through that small opening at one end of the cocoon. The struggle continued for hours, but the moth could never quite force its body beyond a certain point in that little hole. Finally, the man thought something was wrong and that maybe the opening should have been larger. So he took a pair of scissors and he clipped the restraining threads that kept this moth from coming out. And now all of a sudden it easily emerged and crawled out on the windowsill. But now its body was large and swollen, its wings small and shriveled. He thought in a few hours, oh, that'll all work itself out. But it didn't happen. That moth should have been a thing of great beauty, free to float, free to fly. But it spent its short life dragging around the swollen body and shriveled wings. The threads and the struggle necessary to exit that cocoon were the very things that pushed the fluids into the moth's wings. He thought he was doing something kind. For the moth and what he realized he had done the most cruel thing he possibly could. By relieving the moth from its struggle, he doomed it to a short existence and death. The writer says, God often lets us struggle rather than stepping in like a big brother to do our fighting for us. No doubt he could. He could make it so easy and every moment of life so pleasant. But as we struggle, becoming exhausted almost beyond endurance, change occurs in us, which could not happen otherwise. The fluids of life begin to expand our wings. This is what makes us capable of flight. God, we are told very clearly in Scripture, allows us to go through difficult things, through storms and trials and swampings, oftentimes so that it can push those spiritual fluids into our life that we become more fruitful. It's very hard for us to accept that because we can't quite see it. We have the view of the man. Why doesn't God snip the threads and make this easier? But he doesn't. Storms will come. Now, the second point I want to make, first point, very simple, storms will come. Number two, jump to the next slide. If Jesus is in the boat, storm doesn't go away, but there's peace in the eye of the storm. Do you know what the eye of the storm is? It's it's an actual phenomenon. You can be in a tornado, If you're in the eye, it's perfect calm. Absolute chaos around you, but in the eye, everything's completely calm, still. I have a friend that was in the eye of a a tornado, and he was like, it was eerie, scary. It was so silent and calm, and I could see objects flying through the air around me. But where I stood, nothing. Look at verse 39. When Jesus woke up — I love this — he rebuked, (laughs) okay? He literally kind of got after the wind and the waves, like — and actually, the Greek word there, the idea is that he shushed them, shh, enough, shut up. (laughs) And they — they listen. They listen. They go, whoa. Look what it says there. (laughs) Suddenly, the wind stopped, and there was great calm. And he asked them, why were you guys afraid? (laughs) Can you imagine being on that boat (laughs) in the middle of that storm? And Jesus asking, why were you guys afraid? It's like, "Uh, if you were awake, you'd know why we were afraid. (laughs) He understands our fear. He understands our fear. But again, take a look. (laughs) The disciples were absolutely terrified. Okay, I'm going to repeat this a couple of times. This is what faith is it's moving from one fear to a more legitimate fear. Okay, faith is going, okay, I fear death. I fear. Uh, earthquakes, hurricanes, I fear shootings, I fear all these things. When you understand that Jesus is in the boat, you go like, "Uh uh-oh, there's something more powerful than those things. He just told the wind to shut up. And it did. It obeyed Him. Look at the question they ask at the end there, I love it. Who is this guy? Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? By the way, I I don't know if it's even gotten down here, but all over the world, people are all worried about global warming and all these things. I, I oftentimes read this passage and I go, do you not get it? Jesus is over Mother Nature, not under Mother Nature. At any moment, he can go, shh, that's enough. And there's peace in the eye of the storm. I want to close with a story that some of you may know, some of you may not. Uh, Jump to the next slide there. Uh, This was a hymn writer named Horatio Spofford. Spofford wrote really just one. He wrote quite a few other hymns, but one that was really well-known. How many of you know the, the song, It Is Well With My Soul? So many of you probably even know the story of Horatio Spofford. He was a 43-year-old wealthy lawyer in Chicago in America. He was married. He had five children, four girls, and a little boy. And everything was going great. He was a follower of Jesus. He was very sincere about it. He actually helped the great evangelist DL Moody in many of his campaigns. And in 1871, his only son, the youngest dies of unknown causes. And that's when the waves start swamping his boat. A Few months later, swamped again. Spofford had made all of his money by buying buildings, real estate, all over Chicago. He was probably the greatest real estate owner in Chicago at the time. And in 1873, a fire broke out, it's now referred to as the Great Fire of Chicago, and it wiped out the entire city. It burned all the buildings down, pretty much nothing was left. Every single piece of real estate he owned was destroyed in that fire. And he found out he had been, due to a error of somebody in his organization, he was not insured properly. He lost absolutely everything. Well, he was reeling from these business losses and the loss of his son. So he thought, we need to get away, spend some time away. So he was going to book a trip on an ocean liner with his wife and his four daughters to go to Europe. Last minute they said, we need you to, we we might be able to recoup some of your money. So he stayed behind and said, you guys go ahead, I'll come a couple of days later. His wife and daughter. All four of them loaded on that boat, and on November 22nd, 1873, a final wave seemed to swamp everything. That boat crashed into an iron sailboat that destroyed it. In fact, the ship she and his daughters were on sank in 12 minutes. Only a few people survived. All four of his daughters drowned. His wife survived, and he found out about it. Again, they don't have telephones or anything. He got a cable from Europe from his wife. Very expensive to send, so just a few words. We still have a copy of that cable. Here's all she wrote, saved only. What shall I do now? Spofford dropped everything. He got on a ship. He thought, I need to go be with my wife. He was grieving from all these tragedies in his life, all these waves that had swamped his boat. He gets halfway across the ocean, and for whatever reason, the new ship captain decides to stop and bring everybody up on deck and say, this is the place where this ship just lost 226 people. That's where his daughter just died. And so he stood on board, and he thought, I can't do this, Lord, is in that moment that he sat down on the deck and began pinning the words to the hymn we now know as, It is well with my soul. When you read the words, when you hear it, uh, it's really, I find, easy for me to go like, yes, I agree with this. Even though when the storm's coming, I feel this sense of, What's going on, Lord, are you asleep? I can sing in my heart this song with Horatio Spofford. I understand that he didn't, like, write this song and go, "Now I'm happy every day, everything's great. He's like, more waves are probably going to come. It doesn't matter, because I know Jesus, I can say it is well with my soul. I'm going to ask you to stand this morning. Let me ask you a simple question. What do you really fear in life? Fear death? Fear financial ruin? Fear family and relational issues? All good things. Faith is moving from those fears to something far more powerful. As Jesus put it one side, You should fear him who has the ability to not only ruin this life, but throw your souls into hell. It is this fear shift that tells me someone's truly a follower of Jesus. They go, I've stopped fearing these things, and I've started fearing the one who has power even over nature. Is that Jesus in your boat? Or do you have the wimpy Jesus sleeping on a little cushion in the back? Which is the Jesus in your life? My prayer is, just as Jesus asked them the question, what are you afraid of? And he turned and said, be still. And the wind and the waves obeyed. My prayer is today that you leave with the same question the disciples had. Who is this that even has power over the wind and the waves? Go in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: We hope this message was helpful for you. If you're in Haiti, join us on Sunday mornings where English speakers from all backgrounds, missionaries, diplomats, Haitians, expats, come together to worship, to connect, and to have fellowship with one another. You can find more information about our location, our service times, and our Sunday school program for all ages at our website at kiskeachapel.org. Or shoot us an email at chapelq at gmail.com. That's chapelq at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.